With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What's up, guys? Welcome into the Glory UGA podcast. I'm Tyler, one half of the Glory UGA duo. And today is one of those rare instances where I'll be flying solo on the show. Normally, all you regular listeners know, I'm joined by my co-host Curtis, but we had some logistical conflicts of sorts this week that pretty much made it impossible for us to record this particular show together. Trust me guys, we tried, we explored every possible option to be able to record together today, uh, but we just we just couldn't make it work. So you guys are going to be rolling with me today, uh, but I'll do my best to make it worth your time. No promises, but I'll do my best. Uh, For starters, though, I just want to quickly remind you guys where you can find us in the world of the internet. You can follow us on Twitter at Glory underscore UGA. You can email us at GloryUGAPodcast at gmail.com. You can also look for and like us on Facebook. Uh, You can just basically go to Facebook and search for the Glory UGA Podcast page, and boom, there you go. Page for you guys be up, and you can like us, look at all the stuff we get on there. It's still kind of a work in progress, but... It's up. Uh, we sincerely appreciate everyone who has already done so, but um, guys, every like, every review, every subscription out there, it helps us keep the show going and hopefully helps us continue to grow the show. That's definitely our plan. We've been going for almost three years now, and it's grown a lot a lot more than we ever thought it would uh, when we initially started, but we're trying to keep it going, so any, any help we can get, guys, is awesome. Um, you guys are like us, and You live and breathe this stuff, so we love hearing what you guys have to say. And to that, and we're trying to to begin using social media a little bit better to give you guys more of a voice on the topics we discuss on the show. And with that in mind, we we, we currently have a Twitter poll running right now. We've had a couple of these go in the past couple weeks and had some good responses. But we've got another Twitter poll running right now where you can make your voice heard on today's topic. So after listening to the show, make sure to pull up our Twitter feed and vote in the polling. Again, that's... Glory or at glory underscore UGA. And we'll make sure to talk about your responses and thoughts on next week's edition of the Sky and the Enemy series when we take a look at the Tennessee Volunteers. Uh, and next week, guys, is also the last week of the month. So you know what that means if you listen to the show on a regular basis. That means it's almost time for the June listener mailbag, which is usually a pretty popular segment or feature that we do on the show each and every month. So send us any and all questions or topics you want us to discuss on the Listener Mailbag show next week. It might be past couple weeks or past couple months. It's been we've – had, we've had so many questions. We've had to do two sh- Listener Mailbag shows every month. So we'll see. It depends on how many questions we get. But all the questions we get, we will answer. We'll answer every single one of them. And we've already got a couple that have been sent in over the course of the month, but we want more. So keep them coming to us on Twitter, at Glory underscore UGA. Uh, and one last quick reminder here. Obviously, all of you are listening to this show on some podcasting platform or another. But for our newer listeners, you can listen to this show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and, of course, the place where it all started, Dog Sports Radio. So definitely pull the show up on whatever platform works best for you. We're trying our best to get them on a bunch of different platforms, so I'll give you guys a little option there and let you guys pick which one you prefer. All right, today is all about the Mississippi State Bizarro Dogs. 
That's what I call them. Uh, in our matchup with them, week four in Athens. And I'm going to kick off this breakdown of what the Bizarros will, will be bringing into the Classic City well, with something a little bit different that we haven't necessarily done with all of the Scout the Enemy shows up to this point. But we're going to take a look at their coaching situation before moving into their offensive and defensive outlook uh, for the 2017 season. Now, guys, look, we're in the midst of the summer, what I call talking season. That's not something I came up with. You hear that term thrown around throughout this time of year. And uh, this is the time of year where members of the college football media you know, they begin to create the preseason narratives that, that pretty much drive most of the conversation uh, before and in the early portions of the season. And one of the narratives I have observed emerging this offseason uh, from a couple different sources, you know, I've seen a couple different places, is the notion that Mississippi State's Dan Mullen is now the second best head coach in the SEC behind, obviously, King Saban I himself. You know, I've heard the likes of Greg McElroy, Booger McFarlane, I believe, and Andy Staples, uh, just to name a few guys out there, national guys. I've heard them advocate strongly for Mullen as the second best head coach in the league. I don't know where this narrative came from. I don't know why it's a topic, but it's a topic apparently this offseason. Um, but I just don't know if I'm quite buying that. I mean, if that is indeed the case and Dan Mullen is now the second best coach in the SEC, it's by default more than anything else. I mean, due to the departures of the likes of, you know, Mark Rick, Les Miles, and Steve Spurrier within the last two years, and the fact that those guys were replaced by, at best, unproven head coaches. And in the case of Will Muschamp and Coach O at LSU, they were replaced by guys who, let's be real, they face-planted in their last head coaching gig. And with Muschamp's face-planting happening at a place in Florida that's hard to face-plant at with all the resources they have, but he found a way. But even with the departure of the Ricks and the Miles and the Spurriers and, and even a guy like Gary Pinkle, who I uh, think about that, I mean, he's the guy who took Missouri to back-to-back SEC title games. Um, but even with the departure of those types of guys, is Dan Mullen really now the second best coach in the league? I mean, let's look at some of his competitors for that status here for a second. You have a guy like Gus Malzahn uh, with 35 wins over the past four seasons and, oh yeah, a national title appearance. I know he's been on the hot seat of late, but that's only because of the high expectation he set for himself early on in his tenure by going to the national title game when he first gets the job. Uh, and the fact is, he's still won 35 games over the past four seasons. That's a pretty solid number there. Um, uh, you also have a guy like uh, Hugh Freeze, who's in Mullen's own state with the exact same number of wins, 32 as Mullen has compiled over the past four years. But on top of those 32 wins, again, the same number of wins that Mullen's put together from the same state over the past four years, Hugh Freeze also has multiple New Year's Six Bowl appearances and multiple victories over the, the Leviathan in Alabama, which is a feat that has still eluded Dan Mullen. Hasn't pulled that off. He has not beaten Alabama. Now, yes, of course, the, you know, the argument against Freeze is that he did it by cheating. Uh, but let's not, and, and that's fair. I mean, that's totally, guys, I'm all aboard with that train. You know, I, going back to the Larry Tunsil deal, I mean, I'll never get over that. I mean, I've, it changed the way I look at recruiting. Um, but let's not act like Mullen's hands are squeaky clean here either. To be fair, Mullen's school is not under investigation, and he hasn't been singled out by the NCAA like Hugh Freeze has. But there has been some smoke there over the years. Let's go back to Cam Newton. Remember that whole Cam Newton deal? The whole deal with Newton and Auburn, that emanated from allegations and reports that Cecil Newton, the father of Cam, was allegedly shopping his son around to various schools and met with a handler 
and and Mississippi State coaches in a Starkville hotel room to discuss a potential payment in excess of a hundred thousand dollars. Now, there's nothing out there to prove, or maybe even suggest, outside of logic, uh, that Mullen himself was involved or had knowledge of it. But guys, there is certainly smoke there. And then on top of that, you have the fact that the NCAA star witnesses slash sources in the Ole Miss case that's ongoing right now are two current Mississippi State players in Leo Lewis and Kobe Jones who are singing about being offered a host of impermissible benefits by Ole Miss during their recruitment. So let's use a little logic here. So I'm supposed to believe that Lewis and Jones were being offered and choosing to enjoy all of these benefits and illegal inducements from Ole Miss, yet they ultimately chose to go to Mississippi State where they weren't being offered any of those benefits? Come on, guys. Again, there's nothing approaching any proof there, but let's be real, there is plenty of smoke to at least make it reasonable to perhaps be, oh, I don't know, skeptical if everything has always been on the up and up in Starkville on Mullen's watch. I mean, to believe that Mississippi State was completely 100% on the up and up in the recruitment of Leo Lewis and Kobe Jones and was then able to beat out Ole Miss, who was offering those same guys all sorts of crazy benefits, without offering those same recruits any benefits themselves? Come on, that just stretches the limits of belief. You know, so just just my take, you know, whatever. Uh, But to move on to another candidate for that number two SEC coaching status, you have a guy like Brett Bielema, uh, a guy who, to be sure, hasn't had explosive success to this point at Arkansas, but he still elevated the program from the dumpster fire left behind by, by, by Bobby Petrino and the whole motorcycle deal. And oh, by the way, at Wisconsin, Brett Bielema had three straight 10-plus winning seasons and three consecutive Rose Bowl appearances. Bielema has won conference championships, plural, championships in a Power 5 league, the Big Ten, while Mullen has never even played for a conference title. Uh, I don't think you can discount Bielema just because he hasn't done it at Arkansas. The fact is, it's on his resume. He's done that as a head coach three times. But, to be fair, as we Bulldog fans intimately know ourselves, it's become a com- completely a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately business. That's cliche, but it's true. Uh, and Bielema, despite being consistently solid at Arkansas, he hasn't won big there since arriving in 2013. So, look, let me be clear. I think Dan Mullen is a good coach, and he's done a good job in some isolated years especially. It, well, in, in some of those isolated years, he's done a great job. You know, I think it was 2014, he had 10 wins. I just don't think he is head, in, and they were number one in the country for a little while there. Not long, but for a little while. But I just don't think he is head and shoulders above better than Malzahn and Freeze, and even Bielema, if you look at his track record in its totality, including his consistent championship-level work at Wisconsin. Look, an argument can be made for any of those four coaches, including Mullen, in, in my opinion. I'm, I'm, I'm probably crazy, but I think you can make an, at least an argument for any of those four coaches as the second-best coach in the league behind Nick Saban. So let, let's try to make the argument for Mullen as the, the second-best coach in the league. Let's try. You know, the biggest thing in his favor, in, in my view, is the program he coaches. Not because Mississippi State's a blue blood, but for the exact opposite reason. He is the head coach of a traditionally also-ran cellar-dwelling program. I, I, and this is crazy, guys. I guess it makes sense, actually, thinking about it. But I was thinking Vanderbilt would probably have this, this distinction. But Mississippi State has the lowest all-time winning percentage of any 
SEC football program. Yes, including Vanderbilt at four four ninety. They're under five hundred for their career uh, as a program. So when attempting to quantify Dan Mullen's success uh, and the number of wins, you have to adjust it for the fact that he coaches at the losingest. Is that how you'd say? Is that even a word? But the losingest program in SEC history and probably the worst, most remote town in the league. Although Auburn does give them a run for the money. They hate Auburn. Can't stand it. Worst town that we have to go to every other year. Um, And those factors, they amplify the success that Mullen has had as the Mississippi State head coach. So I I think it could be reasonably argued that 9 or 10 wins by Mullen, which he's done a couple times at Mississippi State, is much more impressive than, I don't know, for instance, a 10 or 11 win season by Gus Malz on Auburn, a place with infinitely more resources, tradition, fan support, etc. You get the the idea there. Uh, I think you also have to credit Mullen, here's another point, for molding a raw Dak Prescott into a bona fide star, first in college and now in the NFL as the starting quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys which I think is something I know I didn't predict. I think very few would have predicted when they first saw a young Dak Prescott early on in his Mississippi State career. I don't think you could have predicted superstardom in the NFL that early, uh, like he put together last year. And now Mullen's doing the same with Nick Fitzgerald, another quarterback who was extraordinarily raw coming into Starkville, very lightly recruited. I think it was like in the thousands out of Richmond Hill, Georgia. Um, But he's molded Fitzgerald into a burgeoning star in the league. Uh, as uh, he enters his second year as the Bizarro starting quarterback. And Mullen, you know, he also took Mississippi State to the Orange Bowl in 2014. I think I mentioned that a little bit ago, uh, which was, get this, this is their first BCS New Year Six Bowl game that they had been to since 1963. So it had been a minute. Uh, in total, Mullen, talking about bowl games, Mullen has taken Mississippi State to seven bowl games in his eight years as coach. Although calling them a bowl team last year is very generous considering they finished this, the regular season five and seven and were only invited to the St. Petersburg Bowl by default, basically, because both the ACC and the AAC, who normally uh, match up against each other in the St. Pete Bowl, they didn't have enough bowl-eligible teams to to fill those slots. So they looked to the five-win teams with the highest APR scores to jump into that bowl game, and lo and behold, Mississippi State finds their way in. But still, technically, they've been to seven bowls in eight seasons under Mullen, which Again, is made even more impressive when you adjust those numbers for the program that he coaches. A program that in the previous 30 years before Mullen's arrival had only been to nine bowls. Uh, he also has three nine and ten win seasons on his resume, which again, adjusted for the program he coaches for. That's impressive. Uh, and perhaps most compellingly, Again, is that a word, compellingly? We'll go with it. Uh, But in the eight seasons prior to Mullen's arrival, Mississippi State was one of, and I'm not kidding, guys, one of the worst programs in Division I with only 29 wins over those eight years prior to Mullen's arrival, which is an average of 3.6 wins a year. Seriously, atrocious. One of the worst teams in all of college football. But Mullen, in his eight years as a head coach, has won 61 games an average of 7.6 wins a year over that eight-year span. Uh, so if you look at that again, look at it another way, in his eight years, he has more than doubled the number of wins the program amassed in the eight years prior to his arrival. That's impressive stuff, guys. No matter how you slice it, that's impressive. So Mullen is clearly a good coach who has no doubt raised the profile of his school. But on the other hand, I also find there to be a compelling argument to be made against Dan Mullen 
as the second best coach in the SEC. Now, first off, regardless of of where he coaches, the dude has two losing regular seasons on his resume. Now, the first was in 2009. You might give him a, a mulligan on that one in his first season. Uh, and then all, but you got last season also when they finished five and seven with a loss to South Alabama at home. And on top of that, he also has two six and six regular seasons where he came perilously close to uh, losing seasons there. And then additionally, take a little further. When you look at his SEC record, it's far from inspiring. His teams have finished above five hundred in the SEC one time in eight years ouch and they have a 29 and 35 overall record in the league during his tenure now yeah let again let's, let's be fair trying to be fair here i do acknowledge that it is a brutal division in the sec west year in year out that he plays in but still mullins bizarro dogs have only finished better than fourth in the sec west again one time in his career and they finished in fifth place five times and he also isn't beating the best teams on his schedule. He's made a career out of beating teams with equal or lesser talent. Like, you know, I don't know, maybe Mark Rick later on his career in Athens when he had that uh, he had that criticism levied against him from time to time. But Mullen has only he only has six wins over ranked foes in his eight years on the job. And get this, he's four and twenty-one. Four and twenty-one against the dominant West trio of Alabama, LSU, and Auburn. So yeah, he's won a lot more games than they had been winning prior to him getting there, but he still hasn't beaten the big guys all that often. Actually, it's been very rare in his eight seasons. Four wins against Alabama, LSU, and Auburn combined in eight years. Not a great look. Not a great look. So look, again, guys, Mullen's a good coach, all right? I'm not trying to say he's not. He's a good coach, and we should definitely respect both him and his team when they roll into town this season. But while the argument could be made for him as the second best coach in the SEC behind Saban, as I just laid out there, I could just as easily make an argument against him for that spot. Uh, but let's move on from Mullen and take a look at the team that will visit Sanford Stadium September 23rd. Uh, offensively, this is a team with a burgeoning star quarterback. You guys know that. Uh, and a few other solid pieces around him. They they were a good offense a year ago. They weren't great, but they were good. Uh, they finished 66 nationally in points per possession which I personally find to be a much more accurate gauge of how productive an offense is than total offense or scoring offense. Um, so you'll throughout the course of the summer, you'll hear me use that stat points per possession. So yeah, let's try to get used to that one there. I think you guys will, if you look at it a little bit closely, I think you'll appreciate it. Um, they were 43rd nationally uh, with six yards per play. So pretty solid there. Uh, they ran the ball very well, finished, in, especially with a guy like Nick Fitzgerald back there running for almost 1,400 yards. Uh, they finished overall 23rd nationally with 230 rushing yards a game. And even more impressively, they finished 11th nationally in yards per rush, which I think is a more important stat than uh, where you finish in total rush. I think yards per rush, your average there is key. So they are five, a little over five and a half yards a rush, good for 11th nationally. Uh, but while they ran the ball very well, the passing game was another story. It was far from dynamic. They were 89th nationally in passing with 209 yards a game. They were pretty damn good up front on their offensive line. Their power success rate, which basically measures the uh, percent percent of conversions on third and fourth downs with two or less yards to go, was 73%. And they were in the top 25 in stuff rate, 
which measures the percentage of plays where their ball carriers are tackled behind line of scrimmage. So they were basically not having, they, they weren't getting tackled for losses very often. They did a pretty good job of getting some movement up front. Uh, they also protected Nick, Nick Fitzgerald well as they were 12th nationally in adjusted sack rate, which is adjusted for pass attempts. Um, and now the fact that they have a very mobile quarterback plays into that number, but still, if you finish in the top 15 nationally in adjusted sack rate, you're doing something right. Uh, now, obviously, if, if you watched them last year and you've read about them or heard about them this offseason, the key to their offense is definitely quarterback Nick Fitzgerald from Richmond Hill, George, like I said earlier. Uh, now, like Tim Tebow and Dak Prescott before him, Fitzgerald is the latest model, in the base, I guess for lack of a better word, the latest model in the line of big, powerful, dual-threat Mullen quarterbacks. Now, like Gus Malzahn's offenses, uh, they so think about now his offenses. There's some similarities, but there's also some major differences. What Malzahn and Mullen runs, but one similarity is they're both predicated on quarterback play, and you can say that about almost any offense, but particularly these these spread offenses. So Gus Malzahn's offense have largely been predicated on a dual threat quarterback to execute his you know spread out space based option offense. Dan Mullen's offenses have always functioned best, and to a degree been predicated on having a big physical, powerful runner at the quarterback position that can break the big runs, sure, but much more importantly, bludgeon opponents into submission with quarterback powers that slowly bleed opponents out with those three to five yard gains that allow them to stay ahead of the chains and stay out of those situations where they're having to drop back and try to complete a pass on third long when the defense know that's what they're trying to do. That's not what Nick Fitzgerald does well. That's not what Dak Prescott did well for most of his career at Mississippi State until his last year. He was much, much more polished as a passer then. And think about Tebow. Get him in those third and long situations, he wasn't a deadly passer, but he would bludgeon people, get those three to four or five-yard gains and stay, stay ahead of the chains, and they could do things. they move the ball at will if they were able to do that. So, I mean, because those third and long situations, they are way out of the comfort zone of both Mullen and his quarterback. So their offense really is. It's based around getting positive yards on first and second down. And if you watch them play, you know, breaking down the tape, they really try to go for high percentage plays on the early downs. They, you know, they run the ball. Uh, they'll run quarterback powers. They'll run some zone read stuff. Uh, they'll throw quick slants. They'll throw a bunch of screens, just trying to get positive yards on first down. They don't really take a ton of shots on first down. It doesn't mean they never do, but it's it's certainly uncommon. They're really trying to take those high percentage plays on first and second down to get least a couple yards to stay ahead of the chains. That's what their offense is all about. Uh, and, you know, it's really, it's when Mullen has not had those type of quarterbacks that he has struggled at Mississippi State. He thrived with Tebow as offensive coordinator at Florida. He excelled with Dak Prescott at Mississippi State, obviously. And we'll see if the trend continues with Fitzgerald. You know, Fitzgerald was good last year, guys. He was. A lot of pundits out there are falling all over themselves with the Nick Fitzgerald preseason love. I mean, people are falling in love with this guy. And while I like a lot about his game, don't get me wrong, I like a lot about, about Nick Fitzgerald's game. I think he's a dangerous player. Particularly his ability to keep both... Uh, the, to both keep the chains moving with his legs by getting the tough yards between the tackles and also his ability to take it to the house with his speed, that versatility there. But I, I do think people are getting a little ahead of themselves on the Fitzgerald love right now. Now, admittedly, I was one of those guys early in the offseason. I watched him play a couple times last season, uh, and uh, I was impressed. I mean, he kind of jumped off the page at me with their offense. But after watching a little closer and breaking down the tape over the past couple weeks in preparation for this show, 
I'm singing a little bit of a different tune on Fitzgerald right now. Now, now first of all, let me say this. There is no doubt about it that Nick Fitzgerald is a deadly runner and a potential game-changing type player. He's so versatile, as as I said just a few minutes ago. With that versatile ability to pick up tough yards from the tackles on those quarterback power runs, and then his ability to also bust one and beat everyone in the end zone on the edge, that that that's dangerous, guys. That that's tough to deal with. And I I also love the way he he almost always I don't like to speak in absolutes and say always, but almost always falls forward when he is tackled. So I saw a couple times where he got rocked when his guy's legs taken out from him, and then somebody hits him over the top. But almost always he's falling forward when he's tackled, and that is a critical skill for for a guy like that who's one of those you know power runners you always want to be falling for get this extra couple yards there and at 6'5 230 he is very tough to bring down and is deadly in those third and short situations I mean the dude was the second leading rush in the SEC last year from the quarterback position with 1375 yards on the season and 7.1 yards in attempt and then 16 touchdowns on the ground the dude is a beast on the ground uh, and he was also third in the SEC in total yards accounted for last year with 292 yards a game. And that's also with him not starting and really hardly even playing in the first game of the season against South Alabama. And that, that goes back to Dan Mullins. He got great of a coach when you didn't play clearly your best quarterback in the first game and you lost to South Alabama at home. That's that's a bad coaching decision right there. But Fitzgerald didn't play, really. He had, I think he had like three passing attempts. But while he was really good in front of the football, and he is very dangerous and talented in that aspect, but the pass inside the equation was not as impressive for Mr. Fitzgerald. just wasn't. He threw for an okay 2,423 yards last season, 21 to 10 touchdown interception ratio. Pretty good. But he also only completed 54% of his passes and 6.7 yards in attempt. And while he had the third most total yards accounted for in the SEC, like I said a second ago, he was only 11th in yards per play which tells me that a big part of the reason he racked up so many total yards was because Mississippi State just simply ran so many plays with their tempo. On top of that, he was only sixth among the SEC quarterbacks in the league in yards per play. In a year, I mean, guys, let's face it, you know this. You watched SEC football last year. Last year's year, the quarterback play was down across the board in the league. I mean, hell, even Sean White and Danny Etling produced more yards per play than Fitzgerald. Yes, the same Sean White we saw in Athens that was playing with basically one arm all year. He put up more yards per play than Nick Fitzgerald did. So uh, it's a little bit more to the story there. And when I broke down Fitzgerald on tape, there were definitely a few holes in his game that became pretty obvious to me rather quickly. You know, when throwing the football, he struggles, guys. He struggles with reading coverages in general. Now, Mullen, to his credit, was clearly aware of that. He really often put him in situations really primarily where he was only reading one man in RPO type plays, or at most, occasionally, he would have him read what looked like be one half of the field, um, which is obviously much easier to do than reading the entire field. Now, he can hurt you through the air. Don't get me wrong, he can if he gets those one-read situations because that's basically child's play. Almost anyone go out there and read one guy and say, okay, if the nickelback crashes to take away the run on the, on the play fake, then I throw right behind his head there, boom, completion. If he stays back and drops underneath the receiver, I hand off the run play, and we've got numbers advantage in the box. We've got a big play there. So that's child's play. Almost anyone can do that, and he did that very, He did that pretty well. Uh, and his ability to hurt defense with his legs does present a lot of those opportunities for him. But when things don't go right on first and second down, like inevitably there's going to be some times where it just doesn't work out for you on first and second down. 
And when he's forced in those third-long situations where defenses can drop back and play different coverages, he really does struggle, guys. He really does. Um, and because he has issues reading coverages, it's, it's always an adventure, especially for him when he tries to throw between the hashes down the field. In those situations, he locks in on receivers, and he has trouble seeing safeties sitting in their zones, or sometimes trouble seeing linebackers dropping underneath his targets. Uh, And that's why they have him throw. When when he throws the ball down the field, watch it, guys. You'll notice a lot of those down-the-field shots are to the perimeter. They're outside the hashes. They don't like like him to take shots deep down the field, uh, in the middle of the field, because there's a lot of bad things happening. There's a lot of bodies hanging around those areas, and that's where he gets himself into trouble. I mean, honestly, you know, one thing that stood to me is he is just as frustratingly inconsistent with his accuracy as Jacob Eason was for us last year, especially in terms of missing those layup opportunities down the field. In some ways, it kind of amazes me. I found myself watching the tape just kind of sitting there thinking, how is there such a disparity between how Nick Fitzgerald and Jacob Eason are perceived coming into this season? Fitzgerald had just as much, if not more, trouble than Eason hitting open wide receivers on the field. Trust me, guys, I was as frustrated as any of you with Eason missing those opportunities on the field. They were there, they were dialed up for him, and he just missed way too many of them. But Fitzgerald missed just as many, if not more. I guess the difference is Fitzgerald's ability to hurt defenses with his legs, but as a passer, man, he was was behind even Eason last season. I feel comfortable saying that. And in the run game, while he's good, we talked about how good he is in the run game, but he isn't perfect there either. Don't get me wrong. He's always a threat, but as good as he is on the ground and as much as he fits Mullen's system, he isn't a make-you-miss elusive type runner. He basically either runs over you or runs by you. He has great speed, but it, it does take him a while to get going. He doesn't have that sudden burst, acceleration right off the bat. It takes him a little while, but once he gets going, he's, he's fast. Kind of reminds me of Matt Jones a little bit from years ago at, at Arkansas. Um... And also, again, as, as good as he is on the ground, Fitzgerald also leaves a lot of yards out there. He could be even better than what he was last year because he doesn't always make the right read in the run game. The Mississippi State, they, they, at least they did last year, in tradition under Mullen, they run a good mix of quarterback powers and various zone reads with Fitzgerald. But on the zone reads, there were plenty of times last year where he pulled it when he should have handed it off to the running back. And there were multiple occasions where he left easy, long touchdowns on the field when he misread the backside defensive end that he was reading and handed it off to the running back when he really should have pulled it and he had wide open spaces with a blocker in front of him and nothing to stop him there. So all in all, I guess what I would say about Fitzgerald is despite some obvious flaws, and there are there are some obvious flaws in his game, he's still a perfect fit for that system. And that allows Mullen to run his offense the way he wants to run and the way he's had a lot of success in the past. Uh, and entering his second year as a starter, you would think Fitzgerald's going to improve on some of those weaknesses that I just identified in his game. Uh, I'm not sure how much he's going to improve his accuracy as a passer. I don't know. That's the spot where I don't know if you're going to see that much improvement. But it does stand to reason that he will at, he will be at least somewhat improved in his ability to read coverages um, and in his run reads as well. It just comes with experience. Uh, and, and he does have game-changing ability. You can't get around that. He does have game-changing ability. He essentially had two plays that won the game for them uh, in the uh, St. Petersburg Bowl against Miami of Ohio, he had an explosive... They were down. They were losing to a Miami of Ohio in the third quarter, uh, pretty late in the third quarter. And he had an explosive 44-yard touchdown run around the right end on a zone read, and then another 25-plus yard run in the fourth quarter that set up the go-ahead field goal. He doesn't always do it right, but when he does, Fitzgerald is a very dangerous player, and we have to be aware of him, clearly. But Fitzgerald isn't 
uh, alone on the offense. The guy named Aries Williams that looks to be the guy at tailback this year heading into the season. He wasn't a full-time star last year. And actually, Williams only had more than eight carries once in their first eight games last season. But he did finish out the season with 240-plus yard games in his last five, including a 191-yard performance on the road against Mississippi in the Egg Bowl. Now, he's, he's, he's a lot like Fitzgerald. Not quite as big as Fitzgerald, but he's, he's similar to him in his running style. He's a physical back at 6'1", 220-ish. Uh, he runs with a really low center of gravity, which I kind of like when you're running back. You, you got to run. I really like those guys that can get low. He really gets behind his pad levels real well, and that's where a lot of his power comes from. He's not a burner. He's not, but he's a very physical punishing runner that does a good job for them. Out wide, they are losing their leading receiver and second team all SEC selection Fred Ross, who had a really good senior year, finished out his career with 72 catches for 917 yards and 12 touchdowns to get him on that uh, all SEC second team list. Now, they're going to have a tough time replacing him, but they will probably likely turn to um, their leading returning wide receiver, Donald Gray, to try to replace Fred Ross. He's not Fred Ross. He's not going to be as good as him, but he's a solid player in his own right. Gray had 41 catches last year for 709 yards. That's, for you doing the math there, that's 17.3 yards a catch. That's a pretty serious average. So he's got some explosiveness to his game. But he's a little bit of a smaller dude at 5'10", 204 pounds. A uh, young guy they have that really flashed to me a couple times on tape is Jamal Couch. He's a big guy, 6'4", 223, with speed and athleticism to go along with his big frame. And then you got Malik Deers, another guy, wide receiver, who's been very solid for them. He's, a, he's another smaller frame at 5'9", but he did pull in 23 catches for 264 yards last season. So there you go. There's the Mississippi State offense. But uh, let's go ahead and transition a little bit here to the defensive side of the ball. So, yes, uh, they were a pretty good offensive football team last season, uh, as I just detailed. Yeah, that's not the case on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, again, I like points per play better than total yards or scoring defense as an indicator of a unit's production because it takes into account the number of plays run in this age of up-tempo offense. It's not really fair to count uh, kind of against a team if a team if team A is playing a team that runs 100 plays, whereas team B is playing a team that runs only 70 plays. So, yards per uh, or points per play takes that onto account and yikes Mississippi State was 103rd nationally last season in yards uh, or in points per play obviously that's terrible to add some context to that number they gave up 6.24 points per play while we only gave up 5.2 points per play last season guys that's a full point and that is a huge difference a full point per play uh, now, specifically, they were bad against the run, giving up 170 yards a game, but they were somehow even worse against the pass. They were 120th nationally in pass defense, giving up 281 yards a game through the air. Um, on top of that, their average opponent passer rating was 104th nationally, and their adjusted sack rate was 103rd nationally. Again, all terrible. But it doesn't stop there. One stat I really believe... Uh, I, really, I really believe in in terms of measuring defensive production is something called havoc rate, and havoc rate is basically what it sounds like. How good are you? Are, how good are you at creating havoc? It's essentially a measure of how much hell a defense is raising. How di- how disruptive is that defense? That's what havoc rate measures. It is a technically a combined measure of tackles for loss, sacks, forced fumbles, and passes defended. When teams don't get any yards or lose yards on early downs, guys it significantly reduces their likelihood of scoring on that drive. The numbers will indicate that. 
So I find this to be a, a particularly insightful stat for defense. How much trouble are you causing for offense? How, does, how much are you disrupting them? Uh, Mississippi State was 82nd nationally overall in havoc rate, la- havoc rate last year. That's not good. Uh, but when that is broken down between the front sevens and the defensive backfield, it's even more revealing. Now, their front seven havoc rate was actually good. Uh, it was 36 nationally. But their defensive back havoc rate was 122nd nationally. A big disparity there, obviously. So the clear trend that emerges when you factor all that in with the poorest passing numbers is that Mississippi State is exceptionally weak in the defensive backfield. At least they were last year. And it looks like they will be at least somewhat so this year. And uh, so that because of that, that might be where we want to attack early and often, even with our stud backs. I know it's kind of counterintuitive to say, hey, we have these stud running backs while we throw the ball. But when you have a secondary that's put up those kind of numbers last year, whew, it's hard to not want to try to take advantage of that. So uh, I guess to summarize the Mississippi State defense, they are they were pretty bad against the run, although their front seven can be pretty disruptive. They gave up a ton of points last season and maybe one of the worst defensive backfields of any team in the nation. They couldn't rush the passer, couldn't get after him at all. So that's a bad combination, and that might be a part of why they were so bad against the pass last year. It's, it's all kind of connected to the pass rush and pass defense. Now, that was last year, and I'm a firm believer in, the, in this idea that every season is its own entity. What happened last season doesn't mean it's going to happen this season. But those numbers do at least give us a solid baseline in terms of what to expect in 2017. Now, Dan Mullen did basically execute a trade with Louisville. I mean, if... You can't really do that in college football, but it's close as you can get in college football, where uh, he's bringing in a face that's very familiar to all of us uh, in Dog Nation and Todd Grantham to be his defensive coordinator, while the 2016 Mississippi State defensive coordinator, Peter Sermon, then went and took Grantham's old defensive coordinator job at Louisville. So they basically just swapped defensive coordinators. Uh, and I know that we have some painful memories of third and Grantham. Trust me, guys, I still got them. But... I'd still say Mississippi State probably made out better here than Louisville in that switcheroo. Now, could Grantham engineer some improvement in this defense? Sure, absolutely could. And that may even be likely. But even if they do improve this year defensively, what does that even mean? So what, they're going to move from 103rd in points per play to 70th? That's still pretty freaking terrible. So I just I don't think it's as though they're going to suddenly just jump into the top third in one year with a new defense coordinator. I just don't think you can expect that. It's just not reasonable. Now, personnel-wise, defensively, there are a few guys that stand out to me. Jeffrey Simmons was a rare five-star assignee for them a year ago at Deems of Tackle. You guys remember him. He's the guy, I'm sure you all saw the video, who got caught on video beating the holy hell out of a woman when she was on the ground. Um, Yet Mullen and the Mississippi State Administration defended him, of course, allowed him to enroll in their school uh, anyway because I guess they're just so desperate for Deems of Talent that they couldn't afford to pass on him. I mean, after all, it's not every day that Mississippi State gets a five-star recruit. So yeah, he's that guy. Um, well, Simmons is very good. His background off the field, put that you know whatever, which is terrible. But he's a good football player, and that's why he's still on the team. Clearly, uh, but still, he wasn't overly productive last season in the freshman year. Uh, maybe like a, I would maybe qualify as like a Trent Thompson freshman year, where Trent was really highly recruited coming to high school, but wasn't dominant in his first year. Kind of what we saw out of Jeffrey Simmons last year. Had moments. Um, but he did definitely show his potential in those isolated moments, particularly late in the year. And as the old cliche goes, most college players do make their biggest jump from year one to year two in the system. So he really, but I will say like, now he's good. Jeffrey Simmons is good, but he really might be the only player in their defense that would start for our defense right now. I, I mean, watching them, he might be at this point from what I've seen. Now, some, some guys may, might make a big jump this year. 
But based on what I saw last year, he might be the only guy that they've got coming back that would start for our defense. I would feel comfortable saying that right now. Now, another guy to watch for, though, is Leo Lewis. He's Now, he's a linebacker, and he's another guy who is more famous at this point for his off-the-field antics than what he's done on the field to date. He's, uh, he's the guy that is in the news right now. He's the star witness for the NCAA and the Ole Miss investigation. Basically, he's the snitch who was getting immunity to seeing on all the benefits that Ole Miss offered him during his recruitment. But uh, loss and all that is the fact that Lewis was, I mean, let's not forget this, he was the number one linebacker in the country according to the 247 composite ratings coming out of high school. He's a very talented player, he is. Um, and the only reason I say he wouldn't be, he wouldn't start for us right now is because I just, I happen to love our inside linebacker duo. I think that Patrick and Roquan are better than him. But still, Lewis is a good player. He, he basically played every other series for them as the, as the season progressed last year. And he did some good things. Now, he's he's still a little slow in his run reads at this stage. And that hesitation, that split-second hesitation, allows Buckers to kind of get out on him, get their hands on him, and, and kind of take him out of the play a little too often um, for Mississippi State's lacking, I'm sure. But when he's allowed to, to, to flow freely side on the sideline, man, that's Lewis's game. He's very good at that. And he does. He does have the athleticism. He does have the talent, the potential to become a very good player this year or some point down the road. But you also got to remember the Bizarros are losing their leading tackler the past two seasons in inside linebacker Richie Brown. So replacing his production might pose an issue as well for them coming into the year. Now, ultimately, I have my way too early confidence meter. You guys don't like to do my confidence meter here uh, with these games. It's way too early. It's still only June. But if I'm looking at it right now, as we head into this season, I'd have my confidence meter for this game set at a 7. Now, could they beat us? Sure, definitely they could. Things happen. But for that to happen, it would take them playing their A game and us playing, I don't know, a C-level game for that to really happen. We're just, we are a significantly more talented team than this football team right now than this this Mississippi State football team. And we have zero business losing this game, especially considering it's at home. After all, guys, let's not let facts get in the way here and forget that this was a 5-7 and seven team last season that did not earn a bowl bid on their own merits. This is a team that lost to South Alabama, albeit without Fitzgerald at quarterback. I throw that in there, but still, they lost to South Alabama at home, and then they struggled to beat a 6-win Miami of Ohio team by one point, 17-16, with Nick Fitzgerald in the St. Petersburg Bowl. A bowl rumor that they only got an invite to because other conferences couldn't fill their slots and somebody had to play in the bowl game. So, look, it, it I, I hear the conversation out there, and I'm not going to sit here and say I haven't thought about this myself, because I have. But it could be a potential trap game, as it, it does fall just two weeks after the trip to Notre Dame and immediately before a key divisional row game at Tennessee. So I, I see what some people are saying there, and I thought that for a while myself. But upon further review, after really breaking down the tape over the past couple weeks, if we have aspirations of being a championship team, we cannot allow games like this to become a trap game. We just can't allow that to happen. The old, that's what the old Georgia would do. We're trying to take that next step. That's why we got rid of Mark Rick and brought Kirby Smart in. We can't have games like this be trap games. We can't get tripped up in games like this. We, just, we have no business losing. We just don't. We just do not. Uh, now, to be sure, you know, we've talked about him a lot, but Nick Fitzgerald is the kind of player that can rise up in any one single game, and he absolutely can give them a chance to win. And we should clearly be weary, wary of that. But with our talent advantage, the only way that will happen is if we blow assignments and just lose the game from a mental standpoint because they just simply don't, guys. They don't have the horse to out-athlete us. We have the experience 
and the talent with guys like Trent Thompson and Tyler Clark inside, then guys like John Ledbetter and Davin Bellamy on the edges. The whole Fitzgerald in check. Now, Fitzgerald's going to do some things. He'll get some yards. He'll score. He'll, he'll, he'll probably he'll, he'll make some plays. Let's just leave it at that. But I still think we have what it takes defensively to match up and hold them in check. And really, here's another thing to consider as well in terms of the matchup in this game. It's still early, but just consider it at this point. Unless a wide receiver steps up to fill Fred Ross's void at wide receiver, I do like our chances to slow Fitzgerald down at this point. Uh, again, of course, I have to qualify this by saying that every season it's its own deal, and we won't really know what the 2017 Mississippi State Bizarro Dogs are all about until they actually do take the field in September. But even though I don't think, I really don't, I don't think that we're spectacular in the secondary, we should still be plenty good enough to handle their wide receivers and man coverage on early downs, which will allow us to even out the numbers in the box and contain Fitzgerald. Now, if we can't contain those wide receivers in man coverage and Fitzgerald can put it on them in the quick game, watch out. It could be a long day. But I just don't see that happening. I don't. And offensively, I like our matchups just about everywhere on the field. Their strength defensively is clearly in the front seven with the likes of Simmons and Lewis. And while much remains to be seen in terms of how our offensive line will perform in 2017, I will readily admit that. There's still a big question mark there on the offensive line. The fact remains that defensive front, even with Simmons, it's not an overwhelming front right now. And we should hopefully at least be able to hold our own against them up front. And we all know about Easton's struggles a year ago, but... Based on what I saw in the spring, particularly at that first scrimmage, I know a lot, everyone got to see G-Day. I got a chance to go watch the first scrimmage. And what I saw there, I mean, guys, Easton's going to take a huge step. I, I'm a big believer right now that Easton's in for a big jump in year two. I could be wrong. We'll see. But I think he's going to take a, a pretty sizable jump here in year two. And really, absent dramatic improvements on their part. Even if they improve a little bit, it's not going to be enough. But if they don't improve dramatically, I think Easton has a chance to do some serious damage against that Mississippi State secondary. They'll come to play. There's no doubt they will. Mullen's a good coach. He'll have them ready. He'll game plan well, and they'll have a well-executed offense. But unless we fail to show up in this game, we absolutely should head to Knoxville in Week 5 fresh off of a victory. Whew. All right, guys. I really appreciate you sticking out with me here today. Um, it's always weird. I feel weird doing these these solo shows. I really hate doing them. Um, but... I hope I made it worth your time. Uh, and Kurt will be back next week, so don't worry about that. He will be back. And also, don't forget to vote in our Twitter poll and also send us your questions for the listener mailbag that we will be recording for next week. You can send those questions to us on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. You can email them to us at gloryujapodcast at gmail.com or you could also just post them to our Glory UGA Podcast Facebook page if that is easier for you. Well, that's it for today, guys. Uh, thanks for listening, and as always, go dogs. <laughs>